0: Matthew chapter 27, verses 1 through 26. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him, led him away, and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I've sinned. By betraying innocent blood, they said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priests, taking the pieces of silver, said, it's not lawful to put them into the treasury since it's blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, and they took the 30 pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave them no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, saying, Have nothing to do with this righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, which of the two do you want me to release to you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus who is called Christ? They all said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water And washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. This is the word of God. You may be seated. Let's pray. Lord, give us understanding this morning. Your Spirit has written these words through your apostle, Matthew. And your Spirit is here with us. So, Lord, give us understanding. Show us Christ in this text. Show us the gospel, Lord. In Christ's name, amen. Well... Um, Red and green together, you know, this, these are two colors that we don't normally put together, are they? And I don't mean we don't normally put subtle reds like brownish red and, and subtle greens like sage together. I mean like evergreen tree green and Crayola crown red. We don't normally put those colors together. And if you're thinking, yes, we do, no, you don't. If if you painted one room of your house, Crayola crown red, and you put wall-to-wall green carpet in that room, you would make people feel uncomfortable. (laughs) People would find an excuse not to go in that room when they visited you. Or if they did, they would feel like they had to bring a present with them, wouldn't they? Why? Because those are Christmas colors. That That bold red and that bold green are only brought together at one time of year. One holiday has the distinct privilege of bringing clashing colors together. And together those are almost exclusively Christmas colors. And legend has it, and I like to believe in legends, so I hope it's true. but red and green together represent Christmas because the green represents the evergreen tree, eternal life, always green, always living. And then the red represents the blood of Christ. Eternal life, it's easy to talk about, isn't it? Blood and death, not so much. But this blood, the red of Christmas, is what we call the the scarlet thread woven throughout the tapestry of Scripture. Wherever you look in the Bible from Genesis to Revelation, you will find it. And you'll find it coming up in two different ways. The blood of the innocent. You see that at the very beginning. The blood of the innocent brother is crying out from the ground. The blood of the innocent. And then you'll see it in the blood of the covenant. And both of those massively important biblical images, these, these really big themes... Find an intersection in this morning's text. Well, really, all Bible themes find their intersection in Christ. But in, in this morning's text, we're, we're going to see that especially coming true the blood of the innocent and the blood of the covenant coming together. The, the text is, is, is arranged with sort of an introduction, and then we have Judas and the priests. And then we have Jesus and Barabbas and Pilate and the crowds. So that, that that group, Judas and the priest, and then Jesus and Pilate and the crowds. So we're going to start with our introduction. It's a very short introduction, verses 1 and 2. Begins early in the morning on Good Friday. So if we were breaking up Passion Week, we would break it up by days. Well, a new, a new day has come. It's... It's Friday morning. The sun has risen, the rooster has crowed. We heard the rooster crowing last week. And that sanhedrin who was there gathered in the night to take counsel, to, to hear judgment against Jesus. Now they're gathered together again for one last session, that they, they want to get their story straight before they go to Pilate. Look at Matthew 27 verse one. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus. To put him to death. That taking counsel, we've seen that over and over and over again, a a fulfillment of Psalm 2. Well, this counsel taking is meant to to, to make sure that whoever it is that from that group that's going to go stand before Pilate is is going to have the the perfect airtight case against Jesus. They they know the arguments that they're going to make when they go stand before Pilate the governor. They want to make sure that their arguments ensure that Jesus will be put to death. Now, now there's there's something you need to know. There's a reason why they have to go to Pilate in the first place. The reason is that they cannot or they're not supposed to kill Jesus themselves. It's technically illegal. In the Roman Empire, which is where they live, only the civil government holds the authority of the sword, capital punishment. The religious leaders do not have that power entrusted to them. And these religious leaders, are just not allowed to kill somebody. So, so even if Jewish law, which you read in Leviticus, lots of things are punishable by death, even if those laws say someone has committed a crime punishable by death, that law is subjected to Roman law. And the, the irony here is that these self-important religious men are making the decision to kill the Son of God, right? the, the Messiah, the one to whom all, all authority in heaven and on earth will soon be given. And these men, who are going to kill that man, have to subject themselves to this local governor, a, a low-ranking civil authority within the greater Roman Empire. And what, what, that's a reminder. It's reading between the lines here. It's a reminder that these religious leaders do not represent God's kingdom as Israel once did when they were under Moses or when they were under David. These people live in Caesar's kingdom. And the one who came to bring God's kingdom, well, they want to kill him. It's kind of pitiful, isn't it? Watching these these men destroy what they're supposed to be hoping in. And that really, if you've been reading Jesus' critique of of the religious leaders throughout his ministry, that's what he's been showing us. Judaism at that time had become a a worldly, man-centered religion. Well, that aside, the religious leaders agree on their story, and then we see verse 2, they bound Jesus, and they led him away and delivered him over to Pilate, the governor. And that sort of is their introduction. It sets the scene for what we're going to see happen next. Our first interchange, you would think it would be Jesus before Pilate, but it's not because Matthew has uh, some, some lessons he wants to teach us first, um, so our first interchange here regarding this blood theme that I told you was coming, we see it between Judas and these religious leaders. If you have an ESV Bible, which is what we've been reading from, you will see at the heading to this paragraph, Judas hangs himself. And that, that, that's true, that happens, it's a really grim part of the action here, but really, that's more like collateral damage than it is the main point. The main idea in this section is the deficiency of empty religion. So if you're taking notes, the deficiency of empty religion is the point here. So a more apt heading would be Judas' priests. If we were to to head this, because they're really in focus here, what is deficient about the priests that Judas goes to. So let's look at it. Matthew 27 we're going to look just at verses 3 through 5. So Judas the betrayer saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind, brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the priests and the elders. Look what he says, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. He throws the pieces of silver into the temple, he leaves and hangs himself. So Judas, he sees what's happened. He sees that Jesus is condemned to die. He realizes at that moment the devastation that his sin has brought. So Matthew says, he changed his mind, which is which is see, he went from willfully, knowingly betraying Jesus to the realization that he no longer wants to be Jesus' betrayer. And so what does he do? He changes his mind. In verse 4, he confesses his sin. I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. He knows what he's done. Now, normally, we would call this repentance. That may be a shock to some of you because we don't normally think of Judas repenting. But normally, the thing about repentance is, it's, in itself, it means to turn from sin and change your way of thinking to another. It involves feeling remorse for your sin and confessing your sin. Judas did that. Changed his mind. He no longer wants to see Jesus condemned. He admits that what, that what he did in betraying Jesus wasn't just a mistake, like, oh, I messed up, I, I didn't know it would go this far. He admits that it was sinful. That's a theological word. That means he recognizes he broke God's law. What does God's law say about what he has done? Deuteronomy twenty seven twenty five: Cursed be anyone who takes a bribe to shed innocent blood. That's Judas. Judas knows that's him, and he wants that curse removed. He wants it relieved. And as evidence of, his, of, of what's going on in his heart, he returns the money. He wants to undo what he's done, and he wants nothing more to do with the death of Jesus. He wants out from under that curse. I think it's clear that Matthew is showing us Judas is repentant. But if you feel like there's a tension here, there is. Because there's a problem. It's a huge problem. When Judas turned from his sin, he didn't turn to Christ. That's the problem. Look where he went. Look again at verse 3. He went to the chief priests and elders. He turned from his sin, but he turned to empty religion. Now, the reason... Judas goes to these men and confesses his sin. He's expecting forgiveness from them. These are the men who are supposed to, to make a sacrifice for him or, or make some sort of atonement for him. Tell him something that he can do to have this sin taken away. Judas's instinct here is just like any of us, all right? Don't think that he's different. He wants to be restored after he has sinned. He wants to to feel justified. That's what we want. We we want that feeling of being justified. We want that feeling of being made clean or righteous. The problem is where he turns to find it. He goes to the same priests and elders that he knows are responsible for Jesus' condemnation. He, he ignores the fact that these are the guys who are seeking to kill an innocent man, and he confesses his sin to these guys. In his mind, he, he, having, he's already forsaken Jesus, and so he thinks, where can I turn? Where, where do I go? He knows that the duty of these priests is to intercede before God on his behalf. That's what priests do, all right? That's their job, to make atonement for his sins. And so he submits himself to their authority, hoping hoping that, that they can make him clean. And look at their response to his confession. This is the devastating part. What is that to us? See to it yourself. Their job is to help him. And they say to him, that they cannot, they will not do anything for him. What is that to us? What can we do for your sin? See to it yourself. Listen, when you, any of you, any of us, when we turn to empty religion, what I mean by that is religions made by man, empty philosophies, And we we turn to empty religion, works, all these things that humans have come up with. And when we turn to that to find forgiveness of sins, this is what you're doing. You're seeing to it yourself. That's what empty religion can offer you, an opportunity to see to it yourself. If you're seeking man-made ways, human philosophies, to, to, to be justified or to be made clean, You are seeing to it yourself. It's empty. There is no forgiveness there. If you turn to Islam, there is no forgiveness there. If you turn to Mormonism, there is no true forgiveness there. Judaism now has no way of atoning. Wokeism has no atonement. It's just endless, endless. Emptiness, endless guilt. There's no forgiveness, there's no justification, there's no righteousness, there's no cleansing. It's powerless to save. So look what Judas does in response to his priest's instruction. This is exactly what they tell him. He sees to it himself. Judas pays for his sin. A life for a life. You see it? He takes care of his own sin as they told him to just as his priest instructed him, and he does it by hanging himself. That's the picture that Matthew's given us. I think sometimes we import into this text this modern psychology. We try to find some way of of reasoning why Judas would have killed himself. He was really sad, he was really remorseful, and so he despaired he became depressed about what he had done, and that's why he killed himself. But that is reading far, far too much into the text. That's taking a, a, a modern American worldview that is overly psychologized and, and trying to read that back into Judas. We can't do that. Matthew doesn't say that. Maybe he did despair, but we don't know. The text doesn't say. The text does say this. Judas confessed his sin to the religious leaders. The religious leaders told him to take care of it, and he did. I think he was sincerely remorseful. said he changed his mind. I think he was sincerely sorry. But you cannot atone for your sin by being sincerely sorry. Sorrow, no matter how great it is, is not the source of atonement and forgiveness. Christ is. Judas confessed his sin to his priest, but you cannot atone for your sins by by merely by, by being sincerely religious. There are sincere followers of Muhammad. There are sincere followers of Joseph Smith. There are sincere and devoted followers of Buddha. Sincere followers of Karl Marx and Ibrahim Kendi. There are sincere followers of false teachers all over the world. And these followers have given their lives over to their beliefs. And they confess their sin to the people that they think they're supposed to confess their sin to. There's no atonement. There's no forgiveness in empty religion. Only Christ can forgive your sins. Judas also returned his sinful earnings, didn't he? He took the money back, tried to erase it. But you cannot atone for your sin through good works or through undoing sinful works. You can't give enough of your money. You cannot give enough of your time. You cannot sacrifice enough. Even giving your own life will not atone for your sins. You must turn to Christ. The problem is not that Judas wasn't sincerely sorry. It's not that, that he didn't say the right words and like some right combination in his confession. It's not that he didn't return the money fast enough or, or to the right people or to the right place. It's that he repented in the wrong way. Direction, rather than repenting from sin and towards Christ, and then by faith in Christ's atoning work, receiving Christ's forgiveness, Judas trusted in his old, empty religion. Men who had proven themselves to be hypocrites and false teachers. He should have known, and yet he turned there anyway, and he received in that emptiness. All that any of us can ever expect from emptiness, death. That's the end of Judas. Matthew continues to prove to us, though, the deficiencies of empty religion in the rest of this. So that's kind of part one of, of, of that situation. Part two is the religious leaders now stuck with this blood money. Right, Judas has thrown the money into the temple. And the chief priests, they they take the the money, they say, well, we can't put it into the treasury because it's, it's dirty money, they know it's dirty money, they don't want to defile the temple. So they took counsel and bought with them a potter's field as a burial place for strangers. And that place became known as the field of blood. And in their actions, Matthew says, these men are fulfilling prophecy. You see that? Now, we covered a little bit of this. Do you remember a couple weeks ago, several weeks ago, uh, October 24th is when it was, when we, we studied Judas receiving that money to begin with? And we saw there in that, that first moment of Judas taking the, the 30 pieces of silver, how that was fulfilling what Zechariah had prophesied. Zechariah had said that the shepherd of Israel was being dismissed by the people. They didn't want him to be their shepherd. And he was deemed to only be worth 30 pieces of silver. And that was, if you remember, the same amount of money that a slave was said to be worth back in Exodus, 30 pieces of silver. Well, here, we didn't see that spelled out in Matthew then. Now we see it more clearly spelled out. Look at verses 9 and 10. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them the thirty pieces of silver for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. Now, hold on a minute. Matthew says this fulfilled who? Jeremiah. But when we studied this, we saw almost this exact quote. We saw this thirty pieces of silver in Zechariah, not Jeremiah. Jeremiah never said anything about 30 pieces of silver or 30 anything. But he does, Jeremiah does, have a prophecy about the potter's field getting a name change, which is what we've seen in this text. And if we read Matthew carefully, we're going to see that that prophecy in Jeremiah is actually where his main focus is, so if you're looking at Matthew, in verse 7, the elders and priests take counsel. And look look at who it is. The elders and priests, they're taking counsel. They buy the potter's field. And then in verse 8, Matthew says, because of that purchase with this blood money, that field is now called the field of blood to this day. And then in the beginning of verse 9, he says, this fulfilled what Jeremiah prophesied. All right? So, so if we just focus on that triad... The purchase of the field, the naming of the field, and the fulfillment of prophecy. And if we hold off on the rest of verses 9 and 10 for a moment, then we can begin to see what Matthew's doing here. Because Matthew is not wrong. All right, We can always go to our our Bibles knowing that, that the apostle's not wrong. We're the ones who are usually in the wrong. We're the ones who are misreading it. So in Jeremiah 19, this is what he's getting at. I'll put it up on the screen. You can turn there if you want. But in Jeremiah 19, the prophet is told by the Lord to take the elders of the people and the elders of the priests, the chief priests of the people. Same thing that Matthew says. Same, same words that Matthew uses to describe the men Judas gave this money to. So these religious leaders, the elders and the priests, are to go to the valley of the son of Hinnom at the entry of the Potters' gate, and proclaim there the words that I tell you. So this, this place that Jeremiah is describing for us, this valley, this is the place where we traditionally understand potters, people that work with clay, would have gotten their clay from. And the clay there was the type of clay that you used to make your pots with, and plates and mugs and things. That's why it's called the potter's field. So so in Jeremiah, the elders of the people and the elders of the priests go down there to to that place. And then, verse 3 says, that's where they learn about the coming destruction of Jerusalem. You shall say, hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, behold, I am bringing such disaster upon this place that the ears of everyone who hears of it will tingle. And the reason why that destruction is coming to their city is because of their unfaithfulness. Jeremiah tells us that in the next verse. Because, why the destruction? Because the people have forsaken me and have profaned this place by making offerings in it to other gods whom neither they nor their fathers nor the kings of Judah have known. And because they have, look at this, filled this place with the blood of innocence. There's that innocent blood theme I told you about. What what had Judas told the priests when he brought the money? I have sinned. I have betrayed innocent blood. And he gives them the money back. And what do they do with that money? They purchase this field. So Jeremiah keeps going. So you're starting to get the picture, the framework that Matthew's giving us Jeremiah 19, 5 and 6. And they have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons in the fire as burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or decree, nor did it come into my mind. Therefore, behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when this place, what place? This valley, this field, the potter's field, when this place shall no longer be called Topheth, or the valley of the son of Hinnom, but the valley of slaughter. Now, Jeremiah's prophecy is that the name of this place is going to change. It won't be called Topheth anymore. It won't be called the Valley of the Sun of Hanan anymore. It'll have a new name, the Valley of Slaughter. Matthew's saying that exact place is now called the Field of Blood because of the actions of unfaithful leaders of Israel, and that fulfills Jeremiah's prophecy. So, in Jeremiah 19 being fulfilled by unfaithful religious leaders, and with that money being used to purchase equal, equaling that 30 pieces of silver, well, that also fulfills Zechariah's prophecy of the undervaluing of the good shepherd. And that's why Matthew does this prophecy mashup thing in verses 9 and 10. And I think the reason he's doing this is he's sort of veiling something that we don't see, but his readers would have clearly seen what Jewish readers would have understood when he says this fulfills Jeremiah, they would see Matthew is teaching us that the elders of the people and the chief priests of Judaism in fulfilling this prophecy are proving themselves to be idolaters. And in agreeing, in their agreement, their counseling to kill Jesus, the true son of Israel, they're doing this in service to Baal. So when Judas went to them, think about this. Judas thinks he's going to priests of the Lord to find forgiveness. He's going to priests of Baal. Priests of an empty, demonic religion. Friends, there's no atonement there. There's no forgiveness there. There's no Path to righteousness there is a dead end. Salvation cannot be found in empty, man made religiosity. That's the whole point of that first section. The next section, we find something else out. The state, the government is not the answer either. That's what we see in this next scene. Jesus is, is brought by the chief priests and the elders to the governor for judgment. And Pilate asked Jesus in verse 11, are you the king of the Jews? It's Another way of saying, when you say king of the Jews, that's another way of saying, are you the Christ or are you the Messiah? All right, so king of the Jews means Christ. Christ means king of the Jews. Are you that person? And last week, when someone else, the high priest, asked Jesus, are you the Christ, Jesus said to him, you have said so, right? And here we are, not surprisingly, this is exactly how he answers Pilate. You have said so. Do you see that in verse 11? You have said so. Jesus, is is, is what he's doing here is he's allowing the chief priests to call him Christ and to proclaim that he's the Christ. And he's allowing Pilate, the pagan Gentile governor, to call him the king of the Jews. And he does not correct them. He says, you've said so. And then that's it from Jesus. We don't hear anything else. More accusations are raised, are raised. So many that, that Matthew doesn't even include them for us. Apparently, at this point, after Pilate asks this lead question, he then allows the chief priests and elders to, to, to stand up and say all the things that they hate about Jesus, all the reasons why they want him killed, all the accusations, all the, the laws that he's broken. And he's silent. Jesus remains silent. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led before the slaughter, like a sheep before its shears is silent, he opened not his mouth. That's Jesus. That's what he's doing. He's fulfilling in his silence, he's fulfilling scripture, isn't he? And something about that just absolutely amazes Pilate. Look at verse 14. Pilate is. Greatly amazed, not just surprised, greatly amazed at Jesus' silence. I'm not sure exactly what is so amazing about the silence, but I think it has something to do with the fact that Pilate knows Jesus is innocent. He knows. He knows that he's done nothing wrong, and yet he's not defending himself, and every other prisoner that's been brought before Pilate who is innocent defends himself tooth and nail. Jesus is silent. You get this sense from the way that, that, that Matthew tells the story that Pilate doesn't want to see Jesus go to the cross. The way that he says that this great amazement that he has looking at Jesus, that's a positive statement. That's not just like startled. That is, that is he's, he appreciates it in a way. He's amazed by Jesus as verse 14 tells us. And he knows that he's being unfairly tried. We see that in verse 18. For he knew it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. He knew that the only reason Jesus is standing before him is because of the jealousy of these guys, these these religious leaders. Add to that, that that we read in verse 19, his wife is having these nightmares about Jesus. Don't kill this righteous man. Have nothing to do with this righteous man. So Pilate knows He doesn't want to kill Jesus, but he's kind of torn, isn't he? He also doesn't want to unnecessarily offend the the leaders of the people in the city that he's governor over. He knows that they could cause problems. And so he's kind of stuck. And he comes up with this political scheme in order to solve the problem. Here's Pilate's scheme. There's a tradition every Passover where the governor releases a prisoner, right? So he's got someone who's been condemned, and he releases them. He pardons them. It's kind of like what we see. like Even even in our culture today, presidents at the end of their terms will pardon someone. Governors do that too. Pilate Pilate believes Jesus to be popular among the people, all right? So he knows, he saw on Palm Sunday just a few days ago all these people singing and, and celebrating when Jesus is coming into town. All these people are following him. He knows that there's at least some people who like Jesus. And he, he calculates that there's at least a chance that if he turns the judgment, that's his responsibility, but if he turns that over to the people, they'll make the right choice. There's a chance. What's more, if, if the people decide rightly against the wishes of the priests and elders... And they and the people choose to free Jesus, well then it's going to be between the Jewish leaders and the people. And Pilate can just kind of take a step back and let them sort it out. On the other hand, if the people decide to kill Jesus, well then Pilate's not the one who made the decision. right? That they did it. They're the one who asked for his death. So again, he remains innocent, at least at least in his estimation. All right, so as, as, in, as is often the case in politics and in government, the scheme is a win-win for the politician. Right? So here's how it goes down. There's, there's a man named Barabbas who's been tried and justly condemned to die. Barabbas is a, is, a, is a wicked man. Here's what we know about Barabbas. Matthew doesn't tell us much, but we see it in, in Mark. Barabbas is a true revolutionary. He's an insurrectionist. Jesus is being accused of being a a, a revolutionary. Barabbas actually is one. Barabbas has committed crimes including murder in the process of trying to start a revolt among the Jewish people against the Romans. Matthew says he's so well known, he's notorious. He's well known and he's famous for his actions. If, If there were... Screen printers in those days, they would have these Che Guevara-style T-shirts with Barabbas' face on them. That's who he is. He's that guy. Barabbas is the kind of revolutionary, that this political messiah that the Zealots have been hoping for. He's the guy they wanted. One more thing, and this is really important. Barabbas, his name means son of the father. Interesting. So, so the son of the father is in prison, condemned to die. And Pilate allows the people to decide if this son of the father should be set free or if Jesus, who was called the Christ, the son of God, should be the one set free. Well, Matthew tells us what happens next. That the, uh, the best way to do this is just to read what Matthew says. See it in verse 20. The chief priests and the elders, you can, you can just feel the. And the, the energy here, the, the chief priests and the elders going around the crowd and they're persuading the crowd to ask for Barabbas and to destroy Jesus. The crowd's crying out for Barabbas. Give us Barabbas, give us Barabbas. We want Barabbas. And Pilate, I think, is a little surprised. He he knew Barabbas was popular, but he thought that maybe they would, at least some people would choose Jesus. So he so he asks them again. Which do you want? crowd again says, Barabbas, Barabbas. Now Pilate is is stuck with Jesus. He turns again to the crowd. What, What do I do with Jesus then? What do I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? And they all said, let him be crucified. This isn't just, it's not just the chief priests and the elders. It's not just the loudest, like, obnoxious people there. This isn't, this isn't a small minority crowd. These are all crying out for Jesus' life. Kill him. Do away with him. And Pilate, showing, he shows his cards. He, he shows us at this point that he really doesn't want to have to do this. He doesn't want Jesus killed, so he's hopelessly arguing with the crowd. Why? What evil has he done? He knows Jesus is innocent. He's done nothing deserving of death, but the crowd shouts back without a reason, which is what mobs do. Mobs rarely have a good reason. They're just shouting just for anger's sake now and because everyone else is doing it. And for the third time, they say, let him be crucified. Now, we're not familiar with this as as, as, as Protestant Christians, especially really non-traditional Baptists, but some traditions... In Christianity, see this as Matthew absolving Pilate of all responsibility. In fact, if you were a Coptic Christian, so if you're you from Egypt and you were following that the majority Christian denomination there, you would you would understand Pilate to be a saint. He would be one of your saints. Saint Pilate. Even Augustine, you know that the famous North African theologian. He made the argument that Pilate actually believed and followed Jesus. So if you're feeling kind of sympathetic towards Pilate, you're in good company. But I don't... I'm not going to make a decision whether or not Pilate believed in Jesus because I don't think that Pilate's faith is what is in picture here. I don't think that's the point of what Matthew's doing. The main focus here is on the people. Jesus came to his own, and his own people did not receive him, as John tells us. The entire city, Jesus' people, the people he came for, are crying out for his death. And they want Barabbas instead. They want the, the guilty one. You keep the innocent one. Kill the innocent. Set the guilty free. Right is wrong. Wrong is right. This is what mobs do. This is what we do. Verse 24, Matthew says, Pilate sees he's gaining nothing. The crowd is not able to be reasoned with. Their mind is made up. And and, and they're getting stirred up. They're starting to get mad that Pilate is resisting their will, that he won't just kill Jesus right there. Matthew says, a riot was beginning. Now Pilate does have to make the choice. He can't can't put it off anymore. He can't persuade them otherwise. He has to make the choice. Will I incite the people to riot? And Lord knows what will happen if I do that. More people will be endangered. I will probably lose my job because of yet another riot in Jerusalem. Or just give the mob what they want and back away. Like the mayor of Portland, he takes the water, washes his hands before the crowd, and declares himself innocent. I did, that's not in my notes. (laughs) Just the image, right? He took the water, washed his hands before the crowd, and declared himself innocent. I am innocent of this man's blood. Look what he says next. And this is fascinating, because it's the exact same thing That the religious leaders told Judas. Pilate says to the people, See to it yourselves. Remember, the religious leaders told Judas, See to it yourself. Judas has come to them for atonement, forgiveness, something, anything they have to offer. See to it yourself. The people are here before Pilate looking for leadership. See to it yourselves. They're like sheep without a shepherd again. Their priests and their elders have led them into sin and guilt. The very people who should be leading them into righteousness. Leading them into sin and guilt. They, they need someone who will bring justice to the situation. Someone who will do what is right. And so here they are before Pilate, the representative of the strongest empire in all the world. Surely he can do something. And Pilate, the stand-in for Rome, says, see to it yourselves. Empty religion is proven deficient. It cannot bring atonement. It cannot bring forgiveness. The government is proven deficient. It cannot bring justice. Innocent blood is about to be poured out because of the weakness of Rome. There's something else I want you to see in Pilate before we move on. When Pilate washes his hands and he just says, I'm innocent, I'm innocent of this man's blood, I want you to think about this. Has he actually made himself clean? He hasn't, he can't. Declaring, listen, declaring yourself to be innocent is not something you have the authority to do. It's not something that even Pilate has the authority to do. A governor of the most powerful, largest empire in the world does not have the authority to declare himself innocent without sin. Declaring yourself clean, announcing that you are innocent, saying that you have no sin, washing your hands, that doesn't make you clean. Only God can declare you innocent. And only Christ can make you clean. Well, in response to Pilate's statements, the crowds are, they're willing at this point. Pilate says, I'm innocent of this man's blood, and what do they say? Look at what they say. They're willing to take on the guilt. His blood be on us and on our children. And here, friends, this is where it is. This is where the blood of the innocent and the blood of the covenant come together. What the crowd means When they say, his blood be on us and our children. What they mean is that they're willing to take on themselves the guilt of killing the innocent man. They're okay with that. They would rather die, they'd rather their children die, than they would serve Jesus as Messiah. Isaiah told us that would happen. He would be despised and rejected by men. So when they kill him, they're guilty of shedding innocent blood. The same way that Cain was guilty of killing Abel. The same way that Pharaoh killed the Hebrew children. The same way that the evil kings of Judah and Israel shed the blood of innocents. The same way that Israel and Judah killed the prophets. The same way that Herod killed the little boys in Bethlehem 30 years before this. The shedding of innocent blood is all over Scripture. It's all over Scripture. staining page after page. And here it is again, one last time. God's covenant people are crying out, we would rather shed innocent blood than let God be our king. Unless you think, oh man, they're bad. That's what's in your heart. That's what's in our hearts. That's who we are in our nature. Not many of us here are Jewish. Not many of us can, can say that we're with them, but, but all of us share the same humanity. All of us come from Adam. We all share the same depraved, rebellious nature. That's who we are. That's why Jesus came. That's why he was, that's why he's, he's humbled himself to become the baby born in the manger. That's why when he was accused of insurrection, he was silent. When when at any point, all the way up to the cross, and, and even on the cross, he could have stopped what was happening. But he didn't. Because we needed a savior. Because empty religion could never save us. The government could never save us. We can't make our sin go away on our own. We can't just wash our hands of it. We need a Savior. And when the crowd said His blood be on us and on our children, in their ignorance, they were uttering the most basic truth of why Jesus came. Jesus came to see to it that His blood would cover us and our children. As He taught in the Last Supper, His blood is the blood of the new covenant. And Jesus, our high priest, makes atonement for our sins. And His blood... Covers us. By the blood of Christ, we are washed. We are cleaned. We are saved. By the blood of Christ, we are forgiven. Our sins are atoned for. And in Christ's death, we are set free from our bondage to sin. That's the picture in verse 26. Then he released for them Barabbas. Barabbas the man whose name means son of a father, is spared. The guilty one is spared. And in his life being spared, my life is spared. Your life is spared. And your children's lives are spared. Because the son of God, the father, takes the place of the guilty. Having scourged Jesus, Pilate delivered him to be crucified. This is why he came. This is what we celebrate this coming Saturday. The blood of the innocent is the blood of the covenant. The atoning sacrifice, the one who stands in your place. There's no salvation anywhere except in him. There's salvation in no one else but in Christ. Amen.